Welcome, welcome, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Spiraling Podcast. I am your host, Jackson Wallace. I got my friend, my buddy, my pal, Jason Holland with me. But don't worry, we have another episode with you guys. It's not just me and Jason. We're not going to bore you guys to death as usual and as per usual. We have brought on a, a guest, Chelsea Cashiola. Am I saying that right? Cashola? Cashiola. Cashiola. Okay. All right. So Chelsea is going to be... Uh, joining us today. She's going to tell us, uh, just give us a little bit of a background of her story. She's known Jason for quite a bit, I think. And so we're just going to get some of her uh, perspective. Uh, Chelsea, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's great for you to be here. So I'm going into this story um, not knowing really much, so please forgive my ignorance for anything. Um, but uh, anyway, we were just gonna. Chelsea has some stuff that she wants to share. I don't know if it, is this any of this story public at all to anybody. Yes and no. Yeah. There's a select few. Okay. All right. Cool. 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 So I guess, uh, like, I guess maybe we can kind of give our listeners a little bit of a background. Of, you know, who are you? Who are you today? Yeah. So um, my name's Chelsea, and I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic and addict. Um, my sobriety date is 10/29 of 2010, um, and that's been a huge part of my journey. And not only finding Christ and a relationship with Christ, but also in becoming who I am today. Um, yeah. And one of the most important things to me in you know accepting Christ has always been wanting to work towards the one that he had intended for me to be. Right. Um, and about five and a half, six years ago, um, you know, some things happened in my life that kind of shifted that outside of just my personal journey and recovery with addiction, um, and alcoholism. And a lot of that was from what some would call the Al-Anon perspective of dealing with a significant other that was going through a very different addiction. Um, and so I had spoken with Jason, you know, and he's known my story for a long time. Um, as well as his wife. And it was something that greatly impacted not just me and how I um, perceive life and relationships, but also in my own personal recovery. Um, And so when Jason and I were talking about coming on the show, one of the things that he really wanted to um, capture was, you know, a lot of people talk about their personal story with the actual addiction they face. Um, But a lot of times things fall through the cracks of the loved ones that go through it on the sidelines. Sure. Um, and so that's kind of where my journey and my story in this episode will take place as far as what I dealt with as a loved one, um, being a spouse as well as a mother, um, okay. and dealing with someone else's addiction. Yeah. And all those challenges. So you're not a, so you're a recovering addict yourself, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What was, do you mind me again? Tell me to, you know, hush up whenever, but do you, what, what was that, uh, that addiction? Yeah. So, and I'll be really upfront with you. Okay. Um, you know, I used to shy away from a lot of details from my past um, out of guilt, shame, um, you know, fear of judgment and stigma that still gets tied around any kind of addiction. Sure. Um, But one thing that God made very clear to me very early on in my journey with recovery was that my testimony is my testimony. Um, And he carried me through those certain things to get me to where I am today. Um, And if I'm shying away or being shameful in my past, I'm I'm not doing what he's called me to do. Um, And so it doesn't define me as far as what my addiction was or 
what I did in that process, but it definitely has made me into the person that I am. So my drug of choice as the lingo is in recovery terms, it was heroin, um, IV heroin. That's not to say that other things weren't an issue, but that's kind of what, that was the main topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So how did you, you mind me asking how you got into it? Sure. So, um, I think, like every kid in high school or not every kid, but a lot of people will experiment or want to fit in. Um, you know, as I've looked past beyond when I started using any kind of substance, I identified with a lot of the characteristics and feelings and emotions that go along with being an addict. Um, and so I can look back at age seven or eight and identify the feeling different, um, feeling a void. Um, and that just continued on and just grew within me as I got older. So when I was 15, I dealt with some pretty traumatic events, um, growing up in an alcoholic home. Um, and so at about 15, I started drinking, started, you know, smoking weed here and there and, um, trying different things, pills mostly. Um, and I just remember trying to hold on to any little thing that would allow me to not feel. Um, I wasn't one of those like life of the party kind of people. I just wanted to not feel. Um, so when I was 18, my mom told me either you live under my roof with my rules or you leave. Um, and I chose doing what I was doing and fulfilling my addiction, um, over staying at home. So I was homeless for about six months, um, when I was 18. And I remember calling a friend of mine because I wanted to, I I write music a lot. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was, um, try acid, um, from a creative, I can justify anything if I want to, but from a creative (laughs) standpoint, um, and my friend was like, well, I don't know anyone who sells acid, but, um, um, I have a friend who's a heroin addict. And we're like, sure, that's like kind of the same. Um, and that's really like, I remember on the way there asking if I could smoke it or um, snort it. Like I didn't want to shoot it up because in my mind that was dirty, that was a junkie and that was not going to be me. Okay. Um, but when I got there, there were needles, there were everything that you could possibly imagine out of any kind of drug movie. Um, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to be that outcast again that says, hey, can I do something different? Um, Um, And so I started off shooting it up and that lasted for about two months um, to where it led to me overdosing and was left to die. And the next day um, when I woke up is when I went and sought help. Overdosing and and left to die. Do you mind going a little? Sure. So um, deep with that. So part of my addiction really um, like everybody talks about the insanity when it comes to addiction and there's pivotal moments in my addiction that I look back and I see the insanity. Okay. Um, and so the day before, um, so October 28th was the day that I overdosed. And so the day before, um, I had bought all of my little friends in that group, um, Xanax. Um, and so when I bought, I always got the biggest supply of it and took that. And so the next day we had gone over to our dealer's house, everybody shot up and, um, they all one by one turned blue and passed out. Oh my gosh. Um, and I looked at our dealer and I was like, did you give us some bad stuff? Like what's going on? And he was like, did they take anything? I said, they took Xanax last night and didn't know that you don't mix Xanax and heroin. And, um, and that was the cause of it. Well, being the one that took the most Xanax, he had saved me the most for my shot. And 
he had asked me, did you take anything? And the insanity was no. Very well knowing what just happened to every single one of my friends right. as I'm resuscitating them and trying to get them to wake up. They came to, they were all fine. Um, I took my shot. Don't remember anything past that. Wow. Um, the next day I woke up and nobody else was there except for the dealer. Um, and I was passed out in a corner and he looked at me and said, you're alive. And he then went on to tell me that he had tried to resuscitate me three different times. Um, couldn't get wow. me to come back to, um, and he didn't want to take me to a hospital cause he didn't want to go to jail. Um, I told him I was leaving to get some more money and I left, um, went to my mom's house. She wasn't there. I called her. She said she was at church and I showed up and my old small group leader was there. Um, at this point in time, I was very self-adamant about being an atheist. Um, I had grown up in churches. I had done the whole, let me put on a facade so everyone thinks I'm okay kind of bit. Um, and this one small group leader that I had when I was 16 and 17, no matter what the you know call was about, when, where, she was always there. I mean, when I was homeless, she would take me out for lunch. She would feed me. Um, and so she was the first person that I ran into at the church. Yeah. And um, all I could say was I just overdosed on heroin. And I was probably about 70 pounds. Um, wow. I had busted veins in my arms. And she, I hadn't showered in two weeks. And um, so she sat me down and said, let me go find your, your mom. And... So that night I stayed with my grandmother and the next day we went to therapy. Um, my grandmother gave me a sponge bath and tried to feed me. Um, went to therapy, they told me there was a bed waiting at an inpatient facility and I said, why are we wasting our time here, let's go. So I was in detox for about two weeks um, because of the severity of my physical state. Um, and I've been sober ever since. Wow. Sorry, I'm trying to process yeah, all that no, information. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. That, that was a lot uh, very fast. Okay, so yeah. t tell me a little bit more, more about your, oh, excuse me, I wish I could talk a little <laughs> bit more about your friend, right? So okay. the, the youth the youth leader, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, so you, I guess you met her, uh, is him or her, I'm sorry. Her. Her. Mm -hmm. Okay, you met her through church, mm -hmm. right? And so and so she really had kind of a, a bigger impact on your life, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, and she's still one of my good friends today. Um, so when I was 17, I had attempted suicide three times within a week time span. Uh, <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and I was in active therapy pretty much my entire life from the age of four. Um, I dealt with abandonment issues at a very early age. I dealt with um, behavioral issues. Um, so I was very familiar with a therapy setting. Yeah. Um, and so when I was 17, after the first two attempts, my therapist had told me, if you tempt again, we have to, by law, get you into a, a re, you know, a inpatient facility. Yeah. Um, and I was not the brightest and I took a bottle of pills in her waiting room, um, during my next session. Oh, wow. Um, I blacked out, came to, and, uh, my mom was there. So I ended up going into an inpatient facility, um, that it was great for what it was there for. What I didn't realize at the time was I was dealing with undiagnosed PTSD and undiagnosed okay. alcoholism and addiction. Yeah. Um, and so when I got out, I got into a group that was called Life Hurts, God Heals. Life Hurts, God Heals, okay. Um, and there was an adolescent portion that I met the small group leader at. Um, and mm -hmm. the adult version, you know, they would work on a, a chip system through like Celebrate Recovery. Um, hurts habits and hangups and things like that. But 
at the time I was still putting on this facade of, oh yes, I'm a Jesus believer and let me get baptized and let me do this. And Aubrey was the friend of mine um, and she was always able to look past that and see yeah. past that. Um, but she never did it in a way that made me feel lesser than or it was yeah. just, she was always there. Um, her and her husband were two of the most incredible people that I absolutely loved and looked up to. Yeah. Um, and I had gotten a 30 day chip from drinking um, and then at about 45 days, um, I started drinking again and smoking pot and, um, she was the only one that I could come clean to. Um, she was the only one that I got honest with. And, and after that, I kind of fell off. And then when yeah. I was homeless, um, you know, there were times that she would reach out to me and she knew I wasn't doing well, but she would take me to Chili's and just buy me a hot meal. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'd sit there and talk for a couple of hours and, um, but it was the kind of love that I never knew when it came to a Christ believer. Yeah. Um, it was the unconditional. <laughs> There's a saying that I absolutely love and I, it's how Aubrey made me feel throughout all of this was he's an, I don't care how far you've run kind of God. He just wants you to come home. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of love that she exemplified to me every time I saw her. Um, and then to this day, you know, 10 years later, I still talk to her at least I, we try to communicate. She's living in Waco now, so I don't get to see her very often. Sure, sure. Um, but we try and communicate a couple of times a year and just catch up. And um, she never fails to tell me how proud she is and that she was just so grateful that she got to be an instrument from God in my story. Um, so it's a very special friendship. It's one that I don't know that I'd be here today if it weren't for her. Yeah. Um, and I needed that kind of love. Yeah. That must have been very comforting. Yes. You know, to know that you can can go to at least that one person. Yeah, it was very safe. And and that's what I needed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shout out to Aubrey if you're out there (laughs) listening. Thank you so much because we're so happy Chelsea's here with us. Um, Do you, uh, so you said you had kind of like a rough childhood. Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable talking about that at all? Sure, sure. So, um, so my birth father was not in the picture. Okay. Um, my mom was a single mom. She had me a week after her 21st birthday. Um, and I don't even know my birth father's name. I know nothing about him other than he didn't want anything to do with having a child. Um, and so my mom actually worked two or three jobs um, at any given time. My grandparents raised me. Um, okay. Not that she wasn't around, but they... They basically, I was very, very close and still very close with my grandmother. Um, my grandfather yeah. passed away when I was 11. I'm sorry. Um, and there was also another friend of my mom's that was very involved in helping me. Um, and so it was just kind of me and my mom. Um, you know, I love my grandparents, but as far as like a parental dynamic, sure. it was just my mom. Yeah. Um, when I was five and a half, she married uh, my dad. Okay. Who... I call my dad because he legally adopted me after they got married. Yeah. Um, he's the only dad I've ever known. Um, and then about a year after they got married, my sister was born. Okay. Um, so I have a younger sister. Um, and my dad in the beginning was very 
he loved me with every fiber of his being. And for a long time, I believe that's why my mom married him was because she wanted to give me that kind of fatherly love. Um, and as I got older, things started becoming a little bit more unclear for me. Um, my dad drank a lot. Um, he, every night had Coke and wild Turkey. Um, that was his drink. And I remember the very first memory that I remember thinking something was different was my dad was not allowed to smoke cigarettes with me in the car. And my mom and I had sat at the coffee table to eat dinner and my dad was in the kitchen making his plate. And I told my mom, um, you know, my dad smoked with me in the car today and um, my dad threw a butter knife at me. Oh my gosh. And I remember like feeling instantly like everything was no longer safe. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it just progressed from there. And when I was eight, I started writing music, and that was a big coping mechanism for me. Yeah. Um, you know, whether I was writing letters or poetry or uh, music, I could always seem to find comfort in that. Um, and that was kind of my escape, if you will, for a little while. Yeah, your, your form of expression. Right. And um, But things started getting worse. And as I've become an adult, I've learned even more things that I didn't necessarily know. or or see as a child, um, such as my mom having to have a neighbor come and watch me and my sister while we're sleeping so that she could go bail him out for a DWI. Um, I remember we had deer leases growing up, you know, all over the place and we would be at the deer lease driving into town and my dad would get pulled over and my mom and I are sitting in the back seat, like shoving beer cans under the seat. Um, so I just remember always thinking something was different or off because I would go over to sleepovers or go over to friends' houses and their parents weren't acting like that. I remember feeling just not safe. Um, But the other part of it too was my mom always, um, if she had the option to take sides, she always took my side. Um, And so when I was about 15, um, things, you know, just constantly, I mean, got worse. My dad would um, get drunk and then he'd take it out of my mom. um, And then my mom started drinking to fight back. Um, and that was her ammo to be able to fight with him. She had to be drunk. And so, um, then he started taking it out on me. Um, so when I was 15, there was a night that I had done something that made him angry. He had me sit on the couch and think about what I had done. Um, and when he was ready to talk about it, he had asked me, you know, what did you do wrong? Um, and I told him, I I don't know. And he's made me clean. It was 11 o'clock on a school night. And he said, well, you're gonna clean the house from top to bottom until you figure it out. So he gave me a hot soapy bucket filled with water, um, had me scrubbing the entry tile. um, And I just heard him and my mom fighting and he came in, kicked the bucket and said, you win and left. Well, the next day my mom told us that she had asked him to leave and move out. And I think my sister, blamed me a lot for my parents' troubles because, again, it was very obvious that my mom took sides when, in reality, it was just he was in the wrong a lot. Yeah. Um, and I was just a defenseless kid at the time. Like sure. I couldn't defend myself. And um, so two weeks after that happened, uh, my dad, I came home, my grandmother was at the house and told me that my dad had had a stroke. Oh. And because of that, he couldn't live by himself. Um, and... 
So he was going to move back in. And the, my mom had explained to me that there was one condition for him moving back in and that he had to apologize. And so when he apologized, I knew it was forced. Um, yeah. That was the only time I remember my dad ever apologizing for anything. Um, and I called him out on it and said, I know you're not really sorry, but you know, you're here anyway, so we'll deal with it. Right. Um, and so that lasted for about a year and things were okay for a little while in the beginning, but then things went right back to where they had left off and then got worse. So when I was 16, we came home from school and my mom had filed for divorce. Yeah. And I remember they sat us down and told us and everybody's sitting there sobbing and I just sat on the couch smiling. And to this day, my mom still talks about it. Um, but I couldn't hide any emotion. Like I was yeah. just grateful at that time. Um, that night was probably a turning point in my trauma story. Okay. Um, my dad got drunk. Um, my sister stayed the night at a friend's house and my mom asked if she could sleep in my room with me. Um, he started calling my mom downstairs, asking her where she had kept the jewels because she traveled to Thailand a lot. So she had rubies and topazes and pearl yeah. necklaces and things like that. Um, she had a significant amount of cash that was placed in the safe as well. So he started asking her where are all these things. Um, she finally stopped giving him the information. Long story short, he tried to kill her in front of me. Oh he tried God. to push her out of a two-story window. Um, he left. Um, my mom was too hysterical. She couldn't talk to the 911 operator. So I sat on the phone with them until dispatcher arrived. He had parked his car down the street and was just sitting there. He had a loaded pistol and every single one of his shotguns on him. Oh my gosh. Um, which was about 30. And um, so we hid in a closet until the operator got there um, or the dispatch officer got there and we um, packed a bag, picked my sister up, hid out at a family friend's house. We got over there about 3 a.m., hid the car in the garage. And um, the next day we went out to a family ranch, turned our phones off so he couldn't track us. And my mom filed a 30-day restraining order. Um, and as soon as it was lifted, uh, my dad bought the house four houses down from my mom. Oh, wow. And decided he didn't want to pursue any custody agreement. He just wanted to be able to have us over whenever we wanted to walk over. And so for the first couple of months, I never really saw him. Um, right. Yeah. And my sister to this day doesn't know what happened that night. Um, but that was kind of the turning point for me in saying, I went through this traumatic event. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Um, if I get caught drinking, if I get caught smoking, um, it is what it is. You know, I've had to go through this and be an adult when I was only 16. Right. Man, that must have been tough. Yeah. That's a lot of trauma to deal with. And we were, I mean, we were doing a couple episodes earlier today, Jason. And I mean, I mean, we were talking about trauma and kind of how that affects you mm -hmm. going forward with Rich. And I, I, I mean, I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And you don't realize that the, the longevity of the impacts until right. you start developing relationships or, you know, becoming an adult or becoming a parent, um, yourself and it, and it affects you in ways that you can't even identify unless you're actively working through. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, anyway, on a little slightly, uh, lighter topic, mm -hmm. you mentioned your music. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Right. And that was your kind of your expression and kind yeah. of. How, so could you like how was what was your process like with developing your music? I mean, are you really writing out the notes and the song no. or is it more of like like poetry type of thing or what is it? So I have a very interesting uh, and unique process in it. Um, it has not taken me longer than 10 minutes to write any song I've ever written since the age of eight. Okay, wow. Um, and so when I was eight, I, lo- I wrote a lot of Christian music um, that I would actually sing a cappella in Catholic church. Oh, cool. Um, when I write the lyrics, it always just kind of came to me. Um, it wasn't like sitting down and trying to make music. It was just, here's an idea, and I would run with it. Um, and then once I had the lyrics out, I would come up with a melody on my own. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, I would sing a cappella. And then once I got older, um, I got the opportunity to work in um, a pretty awesome recording studio on two projects that were country um, and was full band recording. So I got to work with some really awesome guys that put together my vision of what I wanted the song to sound like. Um, I knew what the melody was. I knew how I wanted it to sound. um, And they made that come to life. And it was really, really awesome to be able to be a part of that. Um, So I got to open for like Roger Krager and I got to do performing events and um, and it was really awesome but I still felt I felt lost other than when I was on the stage because when I was on the stage just like with drugs and alcohol I kind of be whoever I wanted to be yeah Um, and when I turned 16 I kind of nothing else mattered other than drugs and alcohol. And it wasn't until I was about 19, as soon as I got into recovery and I, even in detox, I was writing music. I went straight back to writing out poetry or writing out lyrics. And some of it came easily. Some of it, you know, was not as put together. Um, And then when I was 19, I got the opportunity to sing at an international conference in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's all very cool. Yeah. And so um, I sang Amazing Grace to open up the conference and um, everybody loved it so much. They asked if I could come up with another song of my own um, to sing to close out the conference. Um, And that was right around my one year of sobriety. And I actually had a song that I had written um, at about six months in recovery. And I got to sing that song and being able to have people come up and talk about the impact that it had on them. Um, And I sang it a cappella again. I kind of put together my own melodies, never learned any instruments, never um, learned how to read music, write music. But I always kind of knew what I wanted it to sound like. Um, And I got to work with some really talented people over the years and friends that would kind of dabble in guitar here and there. And, yeah. Um, so that conference was really huge for me. And about a year later, I had a producer that approached me about coming in and recording um, something. And at the time, I knew I wanted to do something different than what I had always done. Yeah. Um, but... I didn't know which one was going to do that for me. Um, so we kind of looked through my journals and put together pieces here and there. And we actually did an acoustic recording of one of the songs that I had written, um, from that trip. Um, and ended up getting to make a music video out of it. Got, um, a couple of churches would call and ask me to come sing and share my testimony. Um, so God kind of blessed that opportunity um, all around and having people message me about the impact of the message and right. just what it meant to them. And it was applicable in any kind of struggle or thing that you're going through in life. Um, I 
obviously wrote it for my first year of recovery and that certain trial, but it was definitely relatable to in any kind of trial that you go through. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's very powerful. I think yeah. that's very cool no, that you yeah. got to go do all of that. Yeah. You know, I thought that was really, really cool. We'll have to have you uh, sing sometime for, for the show or something. Kristen's never even heard me sing, so. Oh, really? She's seen my music video, but not live. Okay, very cool. Okay, so I guess we'll kind of move into a little further down the timeline. Okay. How did you uh, meet Jason? Is it a funny story or? I just love Jason. Him and his wife have been awesome. And yeah. Definitely a blessing in my life. Um, so I've always worked in the treatment field, working with recovering addicts and yeah. alcoholics. Um, and when I was living in Lubbock, I worked in inpatient detox and sober living. Okay. Um, so when I moved down here with my son, I took a position for a female sober living facility. Um, and after a very short amount of time, I ended up becoming director. Um, I loved it. I, it was a great opportunity financially, um, career wise for me and my son. Um, however, it was very demanding and the downfall of working in that field was that, um, it, I couldn't bring my son around my clients. I couldn't have him in that environment. And so it became very taxing. Um, I'd get home from work at five or six and I would be on the phone till about nine o'clock every night. Um, I went through a very, very hard time in my life uh, about two years ago. Um, where it was, I had about six significant losses in my life in a month time span. Um, and I got into a very dark place. Um, and it was very obvious in work and everything else in my life that I was not doing well. Yeah. Um, so we both kind of amicably decided to part ways. Um, so I started looking for another job. Um, and I had applied to about everything that under the sun on Indeed um, mm-hmm. and ended up coming in interviewing. Um, and I don't even think the first interview um Jason was even there. I interviewed with the office manager at the time and they um, ended up hiring someone else. Okay. Um, and about a month later, I was out in Dallas on a girl's trip and I got a message from the office manager asking if I was still interested in the position. And so I went in and then I got to meet Jason in that interview. And so he had asked me if I knew about what was going on because at the time he had just started going through some health issues and was just getting back involved in the, yeah. the office realm of things um and i honestly don't even remember how it came about that we knew one another was in recovery um but i just remember getting on the topic of it and he called me in his office one day and he was like so what's your story yeah (laughs) uh i was like what do you mean (laughs) he goes your recovery story like tell me what's your story so I did um you know kind of like this I just kind of told him you know what it was like what happened and what it was like now and after that you know his wife and I became really good friends and it just kind of developed from there and I mean whether it was the business aspect or a friend aspect um you know they've had my back in a lot of ways and I've tried to pay that back and helping whatever way I can in the business aspect as well okay well, very cool, very cool. And so you've worked with Surf Pro now mm-hmm. for a, a, quite a bit, right? For about two years now. 
Um, it was a year in August. Okay. So probably about a year and a half, I a would year say. And a half. Mm. Okay, very cool. And what what have uh, you kind of like taken away from your time with Surf Pro? How much like your, I guess your your past uh, helped you with uh, um, with the business. I love the chaos, not just like within the business, but what we deal with. Um, you know, there's a lot of times that storm events come up and it's kind of all hands on deck. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I identified about myself was that God gave me a servant heart. And it's something that I used to be afraid of because it felt like I was kind of opening myself to be walked on or used yeah. and be vulnerable. Um, but it's something that I take pride in today as far as, you know, wanting to be there for the people that mean something to me. Sure. Um, and there's been a lot of times, you know, that I've been able to utilize my empathy that I've dealt with in the treatment field with customers that have lost everything or, right. um, you know, if we're on a biohazard job, have lost a family member or, um, you know, are dealing <laughs> with a flood. Um, and so I try to bring that into the job aspect and it doesn't matter who I'm dealing with in that aspect. It just, I try to amplify it in any way I can. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now you said you mentioned a couple of years back mm -hmm. that you had uh, some traumatic events happen mm -hmm. within a one month span. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind talking about that at all? Sure. Okay. So what? what so it what started. Um, one of the friends that I had that used to um, create music with me, he um, on my birthday in 2011 decided to move out to LA and pursue his music career. Okay. Um, he was a friend that was very supportive. When I got sober, I lost a lot of friends. Um, but he was one of two that I kept in my life and that were very yeah. supportive of that. Um, you know, we'd sit there at my mom's house and write music for five hours and just yeah. kind of play around. And, um, he was just a very important person throughout my high school and early adult life. Yeah. Um, so he moved out to LA, was super proud of him. Um, you know, he was doing the deal, you know, getting to do live music. He was making friends and, um, he ended up moving to San Diego, um, to pursue another opportunity that was presented out there. Um, and I got a phone call. Um, it was January 21st. Um, actually the 22nd is when it was announced that he had gone missing. Oh, no. Um, and basically the long story short is he was at a pier in San Diego and was hanging off, just kind of goofing around and he fell off and his body never resurfaced. Oh man. Um, his body was found about a month later, um, two miles up the coast and that impacted me greatly just yeah. because of the significance he had. But then within four weeks after that happening, I had about three clients that passed away. Um, I had an another two friends that passed away. Oh my God. Um, I also had been seeing a guy and out of nowhere just called me up, said, look, I prayed about it and don't feel like that God wants this for us and yeah. wants this for me. And he was dealing with a lot of stuff from a previous marriage that he was working through. Um, so it was just a lot. Um, yeah. and I just felt like I could not resurface. Like I couldn't breathe. Um, it was taking everything in me to get out of bed in the morning every day. Right. It was taking everything in me to show up for my son, to show up to work. Um, I felt 
like the walls were caving in and I was trying to show up, but there was so much pushback of what was needed of me. Um, and it was a really, it was a really dark time. Um, just when I lose a client, yeah. it's always in the forefront of my mind that that could have been me. That could be me if I'm not continuing yeah. on this path. Um, anytime I lose a friend in recovery to addiction or mental illness in general, um, you know, there's always that forefront that that could be me at any time. That should have been me. That could have been me. Yeah. Um, and there's a scripture that I've always hung on to. Um, in those instances of Galatians 6, 9, and in essence, it says, because I can't quote it word for word, um, but it says in sorrow and, and trials and um, dark times, um, don't let it discourage you. Don't let it keep you from doing the work. Yeah. Um, and so that's been something that's been really powerful for me in my journey has been to hold on to that scripture of knowing that I can't save everybody and I can't be a part of saving everybody. That's just not, yeah. you know, I can't play God. Yeah. Um, and so when they do die, you know, or something happens, you know, to ensure that it's not in vain, um, yeah. that I can continue to pursue what I'm doing, um, to carry out God's will for my life. Yeah. So when it, so you mentioned before that you were kind of like a devout atheist, mm-hmm. right? And so when what was the turning point for you and your faith that when you kind of came back to it? Sure. So I was about nine months sober. Okay. Um, and I was at a meeting at a treatment facility. Um, and one of my best friends was there. Her name was Queen. Um, and she was the light of my life. Um, she had been there since the first day I was in treatment. Um, she was just. She walked in. Everybody knew she was there. Yeah. Um, Life of the party. Oh, yeah. Um, and I remember after the meeting ended, I went up to Queen and I said, I can't leave. And yeah. she was like, well, what do you mean? I said, if I leave, I'm going to go get high. Yeah. And so she sat down with me and she said um, some encouraging things and just kind of talked me through it. But then at the end of the conversation, she said, I know you don't see it yet, but I see the light of Christ in you. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, kind of went home. I was feeling better. Went home. It was what it was. And over the next couple of weeks, that comment just stirred. It kept me awake at night. It replayed through my head constantly. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't know what she meant. I knew what she meant, but I didn't. And it was like, well, why would you have said that to me in that moment? Um, you know, what was significant about it for you? And so I remember calling my grandmother, who is the person that I look up to spiritually sure. um, the most. And she's always been my spiritual advisor when I'm studying the Bible and don't understand context or the right. historical factor piece of it. I always call her. Um, and I just called her and I said, I don't know who Christ is, but I want to. Um, at the time I was really into metaphysics and I love science. Um, and she knew that about me. And so for about six months, she would take me out to lunch on my lunch break for an hour and once a week. And we basically did who is Christ for dummies. And she started off with the scientific proof that is actually, uh, displayed in the case for Christ book. Um, knowing that that would speak to me in a way that I could understand. Um, It was something tangible. Um, And I don't really remember what the significant turning point was, but I remember there being a day of it clicking. Um, And it wasn't just the scientific proof, but it was the 
overwhelming longing of that void that I had never had filled that I had always tried to. Um, and so I was about nine months sober when I, um, about a year sober when I accepted Christ and then even moving forward, I grew up in a Catholic church. And so I had never really understood the dynamic of an intimate relationship with Christ. Um, and it took about another year or two or even three, um, to really understand that concept and really start researching and diving into the word and diving into books and music and worship to connect on that intimate level. And that's what's made such a huge impact in my life is it's not just some person in the sky that I'm talking to and making 911 prayers too. Um, it's someone that so much more, I mean, you, you can't even put it into words. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fair. But um, anyway, you were you mentioned before in the show mm-hmm. that you had uh, had some trouble with and trials and tribulations with a uh, former spouse. Mm-hmm. I was uh, hoping, and again, you know, uh, not pushing anything, mm-hmm. but that we uh, maybe you want to elaborate on that a bit. Sure. So I um, I got accepted to Texas Tech University on what they call a recovery scholarship. Okay. Um, so they have a program there with about a hundred students that are all in recovery. Um, okay. They have their own building on campus. They house them in sober dorms where you're roommates with other sober people. Yeah. Um, and it's a really awesome tool and environment for those that are in recovery. We had sober tailgates. We would have trips with one another. We yeah. have study groups. So, um, so I was up at tech and I had never gone to college. Um, I was about 20, I don't even know how old I was when I started going, but (laughs) I had about three years sober at the time. So I went up there, um, and I went through my first year, um, of college there and I had gotten an approved to go to this study abroad program of setting it up over in Czechoslovakia um, or the Czech Republic. So, um, I had recently started dating someone, um, that I had met there who was also in recovery and I went on our trip, um, or this trip with seven other students. Um, it was a really awesome opportunity to go over there and set up the study abroad program for future students. Um, I came back, um, it was summertime and July of that year or August of that year is when I found out I was pregnant. Okay. Um, and so I, you know, had decided I was going to keep it. You know, we hadn't been dating very long. Um, I was really ashamed to tell my parents and, um, my mom had been, been a single mom, you know, was very supportive. My dad Mm -hmm. was really supportive. Um, you know, and the, the father was very supportive. Um, I was probably about, um, three months pregnant when we had decided we were going to move in together. We were going to create an environment to bring the baby in. Sure. Um, and I had suggested going to therapy coming from the mental health field and gone through what I have gone through. I am a firm believer in therapy. And so I wanted a safe environment with a mediator that we could discuss boundaries and tools in living together. Um, as we, you know, make a home for a child that we were about to bring into the world. Um, the day of our first therapy appointment, I had, um, 
opened his laptop for whatever reason and a message popped up and it was someone saying, if you don't send the $50, I'll send the photos out. Oh gosh. Um, and so I confronted him on the way to therapy about it. And he had said that he, um, was watching porn and taking care of himself and someone hacked into his camera, took pictures and then blackmailed him. Oh, goodness. Um, and so at the time I believed it, I had no reason not to. Um, and we discussed it in therapy. Um, but I started kind of getting a weird feeling, um, over the course of about three years, um, there were 300 women that he had had some sort of sexual relation with. Oh my gosh. Um, I, it got to the point where he couldn't hold a job, um, because he would stay up till about 5 AM having these relations online, um, through video chat rooms, things like that. Um, and so I was working a lot of overnight shifts. Yeah. When, I had my son, so we started, we were still discussing this in therapy, we were still working through it. Um, but when I brought my son into the world, it became a very different story. Um, my main focus was him and providing for him and making sure he was taken care of. Um, again, over the course of those first two years of his life, some really some really impactful things happened, not only to yeah. me, but my son. Um, there were prostitutes that were coming to the house while my son was asleep in the next room and I was at work. Oh, um, there were times that he would leave my son inside while he would go have relations with these women's and women in their car. Um, and there was one day that I walked in and he was watching porn with my son at 1 a.m. Oh, um, right awake. And at the time, I don't ever re remember feeling like I deserved this or I'm not good enough or any of that, but I had a basic understanding of addiction of all kinds. And yeah. at the time I knew that he was battling sex addiction. Yeah. Um, I kicked him out of the house after the, the porn incident. Um, but it got to a point where I couldn't leave my house without having anxiety. Um, right. whether I was going to the grocery store, going to work, anytime I was away from my son, I had panic attacks. Um, the only safe place I identified was being at work because I was taking care of others and not, I didn't have time to worry about my situation. But the yeah. second I'd get back in my car, go back home, I would have a panic attack of what am I going to walk into? Um, so I started getting help and was I diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. Um, so from that point forward, I was dealing with my own trauma in the matter, um, but also trying to rationalize him getting the help he needed because he was sick. Um, I so badly and desperately wanted to have a family that was united and healthy and a safe environment for my son. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I stayed for as long as I did, as I wanted to keep that in knowing that there was help and hope if he wanted it. Sure. So he started attending 12 step meetings and doing his own work, but it just never stuck. Um, and I can't give an honest answer of why maybe he didn't want it to work. Maybe he just wasn't ready. I don't know. Right. Right. Um, but I do remember 
being diagnosed with PTSD and feeling a relief of, okay, I'm not crazy. Um, and I used to use the word paranoid. I would tell my therapist all the time, like, I feel paranoid. I have to check his phone. I have to check his tablet. I have to check his computer and I'm making myself crazy because that's what my life has revolved around. Um, I had my own addiction of constantly keeping tabs on him or knowing what was going on. And I used the word paranoid and my therapist told me, you know, that's not inaccurate. You're in survival mode. I mean, you are a survivor of trauma and this is how you're surviving because it's already happened to you. If you were paranoid, it would be he had never cheated or never done anything and you would be checking his phone. And um, so that was really freeing to feel like I wasn't crazy. I was in um, the midst of of my PTSD and without doing any kind of work, I was going to stay there. So I decided I was going to do the trauma work. I had started with EMDR, um, which is a form of therapy that allows you to heal and move forward, but also identify future behaviors that you can eliminate um, when triggers do happen. Um, So there were a lot of stipulations that I had put on him. Um, I remember there was one day where I just really couldn't live anymore. Um, I hadn't told anybody, but I had prayed for about a month every single day every second please don't keep me from leaving this world please don't keep me from leaving this world and i remember there was one day that he james my son was out with his father and they came back and um, his father found me in the fetal position in a dark kitchen and just stood over me and was like what's what's wrong with you um and had no sympathy no empathy um there was a lot of gaslighting, which is a narcissistic tool and making the other person question the reality. There was a lot of that. Um, so I lived in a state of constantly feeling crazy. Um, even if I had physical evidence that I was shoving in his face, he would deny it. Um, so I finally told my sponsor, look, I've been battling suicidal ideations. Um, I need help. And I remember like writing out a suicide note saying, please don't tell my child that I was a coward. Tell him I was hit by a bus, car accident. I don't care, but don't tell him that I checked out because I couldn't face what I was going through. Um, and so the, the psychiatrist she had advised me to go see wasn't available for another two weeks. So I was like, I don't have another two weeks. So I remember going to the emergency room and it was a doctor that I actually had seen before. And she said, you know, do you have a plan? And I said, look, lady, I know the drill. I know how to answer these questions. I know if I say yes, you're going to admit me. If I say no, I'm lying and I'm doing a disservice to myself. Right. I said, yes, I have a million different plans of how I would do it. But the point is, is I'm here because I'm not going to act on it. Um, so I got put on medication um, and started doing the trauma work and working through it. Um, one of the stipulations I had was he was not allowed to have a smartphone because he would download the dating apps and start getting into things. So he had a flip phone for a while and he took a trip to Dallas. And I remember I had gone to see the shack with my sponsor while he was gone. Okay. Um, and although the, the movie itself deals with the loss of a child and, um, the, the overall principle of it was forgiveness. And that was for me, what I needed at that time. I needed to have that healing moment of if I choose to leave my situation, I can't walk away with anger. I can't walk away with resentment. Um, because I knew that wasn't in my best interest and I knew it wasn't in the best interest of my son. I needed to be at peace with what, what decision I made, whatever it was. So that night I got home and I remember thinking, okay, 
God, I know you don't do burning bush experiences all the time. Right. But right now I'm a little hard headed and stubborn and very uncertain in what your will is, but I need a burning bush experience. And if you can give me that, I promise to be obedient in whatever you will have me do with me and my son. Um, and so I had told him, God, um, we're cool like that, um, that I had just renewed my driver's license. And if I left that week, that it wasn't going to be there for another two weeks. And so I told God, if my driver's license comes in within the next week of when I'm preparing to leave, then I will know without a shadow of a doubt that this is your will and I will be obedient. Um, that next day I got home from work and my license was in the mailbox. It hadn't even been a week from being renewed. Um, and I remember falling on my front porch, just crying and said, okay, I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what kind of job I'm going to have. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I will be obedient. So I started getting the ball rolling. My son was in Dallas with his father. Um, So I started preparing by gathering important documents that I wanted to take um, and things of that nature. Um, I remember telling my mom what was going on and then telling my dad for, at the time my mom knew what had been happening. My dad did not. Um, I kept it hidden from my dad for the whole time until I knew I was ready to leave. And so they got back in town and that Monday he had only an hour worth of class. So it was like, I can't leave in that amount of time. Um, but the next day he was in class from 10:30 to 4:30, And so first thing when he left, I friend came over to watch my son while I packed up the car with as much as I could take. And we hit the road and drove nine hours down to Houston. And, uh, we stayed with my mom for a couple of months, um, got a job, was working nights in the beginning and she would take care of my son and feed him and put him to bed. Um, and then I moved into an apartment and just kind of created my life down here. And, um, God blessed me in a way that I could have never fathomed. Um, he armored me with the strength that I didn't know I had to be a single mom. And, um, you know, I think it, it made me into the mother that I am today. Yeah. Um, and I also, the second I hit the road and, and started coming to Houston, I remember this moment. I hadn't even gotten 10 minutes down the road. And I just remembered this moment of sheer peace. And I think God needed me to be in that place for me, but also for my son. And, you know, I know that his dad was sick and I know that this is probably something he'll struggle with his entire life. Um, And for my son's sake, I hope that he one day gets the help that he needs and truly gets better. Um, You know, I know he's made some big strides in his life. He graduated from Texas Tech and he's got his own business now that he's running. Um, But I have full custody of my son, so it's very limited on when he comes to see him. He lives in Dallas now. Um, So he only sees him a couple of times a year. Um, But, you know, my son is content with what God's blessed him with. And there's times that I doubt that. And there's times that I question, you know, did I make all the right moves as a mother? And there's a lot of mommy guilt that gets played into, you know, keeping him in the environment that I did for as long as I did. But God quickly reminding me, you know, it's, we all have our stories. Um, you know, it's a matter of what you do with them and, um, who you allow it to make you become. Um, my son is one of the sweetest and most compassionate and just 
big heart um, little boys I've ever met and we have a saying that I taught him when he was two and the first time he was ever scared I told him you know Jesus makes us brave and so every time he gets scared or isn't sure or um, is sad you know I ask him who makes you brave and he tells me Jesus and so there's been times you know over the years that he's seen me sad or um, seen me scared and he quickly reminds me of who makes me brave yeah. <laughs> um, but for someone that is only five years old and have gone through stuff that he probably doesn't remember right. um, but for him to allow it to not change his heart it, it constantly reminds me of the person person I want to be, even outside of being a mother. Um, you know, I wouldn't change any of what happened to me. Um, I know that it was up to me to decide how I let it affect me and what I did with it. Um, and now I continue to let it form me into the mother and woman that God continually intends for me to be. And, um, again, I wouldn't have changed any of it. Um, I think it's part of what's allowed me to have the appreciation that I do as being a mom. Um, one of the first things I heard in recovery is gratitude is an action word. So if you're grateful to have a bed tonight, then make your bed. Um, if you're grateful to have a car, make sure your car's clean. Um, if you're grateful that you have a significant other, you know, make sure that you're taking care and keeping the love alive. And, you know, if you're grateful to be a mom, then spend that time with your children. Um, and that's something that's always stuck with me because I don't always do it perfectly. Um, there's times where I really don't have the energy to clean my car. Um, and, and I definitely have different gratitudes today than I did when I first got sober. Um, but I think holding on to the thought that gratitude is an action word and continuing to pursue that as a mother, as an employee, as a friend, as a daughter, as a girlfriend at some point, yeah. as a wife at one day, um, I think that that will always lead me to where God wants me to be. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing this story. That was incredibly powerful and emotionally provoking. I know that must have been tough. Yeah. yeah. You know, to kind of, you know, lay it all out there for the world to hear. So, I mean, we really appreciate you, you know, stopping by and yeah. and, and sharing it with all of us. Um, I mean, I, I don't really have anything else. I don't want to keep keep pushing your buttons or no, anything. But um, I was wondering if there was any, you know, kind of final message you have for, you know, our listeners out there or, you know, kind of a ending note or... Sure. I think whether you're the person going through it directly or you're on the sidelines of someone that's going through any kind of mental illness um, or addiction to um, to hold on to grace and um, to hold on to hope. Um, You're never going to be able to change the person yourself. Um, But grace is a powerful thing. Um, and if you can have grace for someone that's hurting and knowing that that's not truly who they are, um, you know, I've seen it work wonders in my own life with myself as well as giving it to someone that's going through it. And I would just say that there is hope, um, you know, and that to remind yourself or whoever you're, you're standing on the sidelines for that they're not alone. Um, but I would definitely say that grace is was the thing that saved me the most because there were plenty of people in my life that when I couldn't love me, they loved me until I could. Wow. Powerful words from a powerful woman.
thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, there's no way I could have made it through all of that. There's no way. Well, guys, thank you so much for stopping by and listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.